1: And welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host Mike Walker. How are you doing,
0: Walker? Always good, Mark.
1: Thank you for joining us for this our live Gen Con broadcast. Here we are in the uh, lesser populated Kingston wing of the Gen Con convention. I have to say that for our first live recording I was expecting a, a, b- a slightly better turnout. Yeah, I was I kept waiting for people to come and no one seems to be showing up, but that's fine. I we can- didn't even ask for any tickets. It's weird. I mean, we're we're only about a 5 days walk from the convention center. I was hoping one or two of our fans could make the effort, but no, sadly no.
0: They just don't want to make the effort. We make the effort of making, they didn't even want to show up, you know, what can we say?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we, we went to the bother of getting our own Gen Con venue here in the basement of your place in Kingston, and they
0: couldn't even be bothered to... And we all dressed up in Cod's play, you know, I'm uh, some League of Legends character, it's quite amazing, Mark was blown away. Anyway, so we're going to
1: talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played over the past couple weeks, and then we're going to mix up the format legitimately this time. I know we always say we do, but this time we're actually going to do it. We're going to talk a little bit about the news and why it doesn't matter, and I really do mean a little bit because, uh, uh, to be frank, we're not really terribly enthusiastic about anything that happened in Gen Con. And we're not going to have a topic this week. Instead, what we're going to do is we kind of have two feature games. We're we're finally going to talk about Tigers and Euphrates largely as a means to talk about our actual feature game this week, which is going to be Yellow and Yangtze, which in many ways is kind of the development thereof. So look forward to that. So the games we played over the past couple weeks, I got a chance to try Downforce. This is one of the projects of Rob Daviau's outfit, Restoration Games. Here they took a Wolfgang Kramer design of a couple decades ago, and it didn't really change much, but definitely upgraded the components. And I found Downforce to be a tedious, pointless excuse for a game. It was nice that it ended quick enough, but basically the the thrust of the game from what I could perceive was, you create a bottleneck by showing up somewhere first, which is fine. So far, so good. But the problem is, you're now in the lead, and so then you get the first crack at creating the next bottleneck. And generally speaking, in a racing game, you need some kind of element of not necessarily rubber banding, strictly speaking, but you don't want to make it so that the pack just bunches up behind the leader, and then that's the end of the show. And that was definitely the thrust. The person who was in the lead after the first turn was in the lead at the end of the game as well. And part of it, of course, was clever play, but part of it was just that they were the first in the the choke point at every time. So I was not
0: a fan. I played it once as well. I think for light. You know, intro game, it's fine, but like you said, other than that, it it really brought nothing new to the table. Since we're talking about vehicles, we I got to play an interesting game called Let's Make a Bus Route. If you like uh, Quadropolis, or if you like uh, Between Two Cities then I think you're going to love Let's Make a Bus Route. It's very much the same thing, creating these sets of different scoring opportunities, you know, uh, picking up senior citizens, picking up workers, dropping, dropping them off at different places, visiting shrines, going around Kyoto. It's a fantastic uh, import game, and I really enjoyed it.
1: It definitely seems very charming. I haven't played the game, but based on the description alone, where you get points by picking up senior citizens and taking them to a shrine, I mean, how delightfully civilized.
0: It's very good. I like it. I'm glad I picked it up.
1: I got a chance to explore more of Grimslinger's The Northern Territory. This is an expansion to Grimslinger's, which, for what it's worth, was my game of Gen Con 2016 when I went to Gen Con. Grimslinger's was definitely head and shoulders above all the other releases there. And the expansion continues to please. Now, I should say... That there is a category of objection to Grimslingers that is very prevalent and one that does not have any traction with me. Namely, there is a widespread perception that the rules are hopelessly unclear and that there's a whole bunch of ambiguities about how to play. And to be frank, I've... Gone over the forums on Board Game Geek, I've seen the questions. I've seen the concerns, and I just I I don't feel them. Normally, when rules are unclear, I'm the first to object. But I've never had a problem with grimslingers. Any of the editions. It's now in its fourth edition rule set, which is more a function of the designers tinkering rather than I, I think any need to address ambiguities. Although clearly there is a need on the on the part of many a fan. At any rate. I will say that the new rule set introduced in the Northern Territory, while it can be backported to the original campaign, is a little bit clumsy when it is. I will freely grant that. They've tried to make the new systems backwards compatible with the, the old campaign. And having played the old campaign with the old rule set, I felt no need to go and revisit. I tried a couple chapter steps with the new systems, but I found it a little bit cumbersome. You basically have to cross-reference three different books in order to make it work. But the new campaign is great. It, it's loaded with personality. The art throughout is Beautiful, and I've always enjoyed Grimmslingers, and the every all the time that I've spent with the Northern Territory has continued to solidify my impression that this is a, a definitely a top tier experience. Not necessarily a top tier game design, but definitely a top tier experience, and one of the very few. This and the, honestly, it's this and Kingdom Death Monster are pretty much the only narrative campaign games where I really got a sense of the universe, and I really was compelled by the setting. I love me some Gloomhaven, I never felt it particularly compelling, to be frank, as a, as a world, as a universe. But definitely Grimslingers is something that I've, I've continued to find compelling. It's warmed its way into my head, and I've been having a great time with it. So if you were at all interested in checking up Grimslingers, you should check out the base game. And there's tons of content in the base game, and there's tons of content in the Northern Territory. So you can do a lot worse, and it's definitely an economic way to
0: get a great narrative experience. All right, since we're talking about rules and card games, let's talk about Custom Heroes. It's a, a game that you'll remember from high school, a game called A-Hole, or whatever, what other names they President, I, I think, President is another one. Or, and then what? what's the me- mechanism they say it is, a ladder? It's called a climbing game. Climbing game. Like or... Teach You
1: or Haggis that was released slightly more recently. They call it on the box a trick-taking game, which is weird, because although there are structural similarities between trick-taking games and climbing games, they are very distinct in a lot of ways.
0: So it shares much of the rules that you remember, play singles, has to get higher, play doubles, everyone has to play doubles, and you have your trump card or joker, which, which beats everything, but then they have these, much like uh, Mystic Veil, vale, where the, once uh, a round is over, people, depending on how you scored, you're going to get certain amount of overlays that you slide in the sleeves, and it's going to give bonuses to the cards, you know, make them worth more, make them uh, count as two of one card, or you know, all sorts of or, different things. Or worth less. My or very worth.
1: favorite card is the one that makes a card weaker because now they're carrying a head of lettuce.
0: All sorts, of, Or the foam hand was Or my the hot favorite. dog, or, or the, the fish. Yeah. Yeah, very funny stuff. I enjoyed the game overall, but since we're talking about the rules in it, there's like a whole subsection of the rules for this one overlay that you get at the beginning of the game that lets you bet victory points to get more victory points, and it's so obscure and and actually get it to go off and it just seems odd and such a huge waste of time.
1: It is strange it's it's about a quarter of the rule set just for this one card. It's a card that works radically differently from every other card in the system. I agree with you. It's it's not particularly clean. I'm every time I play a climbing game, I'm reminded that I whatever the logic is to playing a climbing because there is one. You, you like there are better and worse players at climbing games. Teach you in particular, the skill ceiling is very 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 high. But whatever that logic is about, you know when to break up a set and when to hold on to a nine or a ten or whatever and when to use your bomb. Whatever that logic is, I don't have it, and so I play it mostly randomly like a monkey. And even independently of that, I wish that this game were that you know custom heroes were roughly about 66% of the time length that it is. I I find it a little bit too long because even though there is skilled play to be had, at the end of the day you are going to be subject to the random draw of the draw deck. And I find the first hand to be kind of fun, the second hand to be cute and crazy and I really like the second hand. The third hand I'm ready for the game to be uh, wrapping up and it's not. It can go to seven rounds effectively. And so I really like a lot of things about Custom Heroes, Uh, but I think I'm I'm increasingly of the opinion that climbing games are not for me,
0: and I just really wish it were short. True, but if you have fond memories of playing A-Hole in high school and you want a more gamey version, this is definitely up your alley. Absolutely. That, That is Custom Heroes by AEG.
1: I got to pull out a game that I've really enjoyed for years called Chicken Caesar, the theme of this game is that a whole bunch of chickens and roosters in a coop have organized themselves along Republican-Roman lines. So there's a Caesar, there's a censor, there are the Praetorians, it's, it's a whole thing. It's a common problem here in Canada. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's one of the the biggest agricultural problems, uh, you know. In 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 light of the trade sanctions and tariffs being applied to us by the Americans, there was a substantial movement to re- strategically redeploy the uh, the poultry legionnaires to the border. But uh, thankfully, we've held off.
0: Really, thank us for that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We won't go into you know why we're responsible, but anyway, go ahead.
1: Chicken Caesar is, in many ways, evocative, not not thematically, uh, obviously, of Republic of Rome. I really like political games where you have voting to secure offices or to have laws that change the, the rules of the game. In Chicken Caesar, you ha- you control a family of roosters, and you try to jockey for those roosters. Not literally, you don't ride the back of roosters, but you try to jockey for those roosters to occupy various political positions, and those political positions let you exert influence over the game state. It's great. I love political games like that, especially if they're not too long, and Chicken Caesar is about 90 to 120 minutes. Republic of Rome, I wanted to like a lot. This That was an, the old Avalon Hill game back in the day. And the reprint as well. I wanted to like it, but it was just too long and too arbitrary. But Chicken Caesar is great, and it knows just when to end. It ends when enough roosters have died. There aren't enough roosters to occupy the positions or one... Player has had their entire family die, in which case the game is over. And there's this beautifully cynical element about scoring because mostly you get your points by lying about what your roosters have done. You create a monument to your dead rooster saying, Oh, he was a marvelous Caesar, he ruled as a benevolent Caesar, and he was never Caesar. Anyhow, that's just a minor side note. It was a relatively obscure uh, release by Nevermore Games, and the theme is so ridiculous, but the actual gameplay is relatively straight that it's an awkward fit, but one that appeals to me on a fundamental level. And I enjoy Chicken Caesar every time it comes out. Ch- Honestly, Chicken Caesar and City of Horror are probably my two favorite political games in terms of negotiation and politics. And there are a lot of people who don't like games like that, but if you're willing to be you know, brutally manipulative of your fellow players and to exert power and try to bend people over a barrel, it's definitely an experience worth looking after. So if you get a chance to try Chicken Caesar, I highly recommend
0: it. So you and I got to play the dexterity game we've been waiting for, Mandira, Mandara, Manara. Manara. Yes. And I think it was everything that I wanted it to be. It was uh, relatively quick, relatively clever, interesting gameplay, and and, uh, dexterity built in. Nice balancing, nice levels, take it as high as you want. I thought it was really fun, and they did a great job. Minara
1: is a weird redesign of a game called Villa Paletti, which was a dexterity game that was briefly infamous because it won the SDJ the same year that Puerto Rico was nominated. And so a number of people lost their minds. I hate Villa Paletti. Uh I have a very simple standard with respect to dexterity games that are light and silly. The rules have to be comprehensible. And I remember Villa Paletti having a number of very thorny rules issues. Which is not cool. I'm not okay with that, especially if it's relatively, you know, just a, a, a straightforward stacking game. I was willing to go through some of the rules ambiguity of Seal Team Flicks because there were some other game elements on top of it, on top of just the shooting. But if Seal Team Flicks were desperately, fundamentally unclear about how shooting works, for example, what constitutes a successful shot, I would have shelved it right away. Anyway, just a subtle reminder that Seal Team Flicks exists and is awesome. But Minara is also a co-op dexterity game. It's Kind of puzzly in a strange way, which I thought I wouldn't like, but it was all right. Basically what happens is you pull a card and it tells you what you have to place. And if you don't have the necessary resources to place them, you don't have the right color combinations, or you don't have enough uh, open spots on the board, then the group takes a penalty. So you look at what you've got, you look what's on the board, and you try to gamble about what the card is going to give you in terms of what you're able to fulfill. And then on top of that, you have to have a steady hand. I have yet to ha- play a cooperative dexterity game that I didn't like, and Minara continues to please. It's quick, cheap, and cheerful, and it is indeed what it promised to deliver. Uh, so Minara was definitely an enjoyable
0: experience for me, and I look forward to trying again. All right, keep going then. Okay. That was mine. Hey, we got to go back and forth. Remember, I do, Minara, yeah, I, I do one, then you do one, and then I do one? Okay.
1: Oh, is that how podcasting works? <laughs> See, I've been accused by many people of talking over you when in reality, what they don't understand is that I, as the editor, have to chop out vast silences where I'm waiting for you to open your fat mouth. And then I eventually have to. That's
0: hurtful. That's personal. That's
1: personal. So I get to play Paper Tales. You and I have both been looking for a drafting game that's nearly as good as Fairy Tale. I think for years. I don't know how badly you've been looking for it, but I know for a fact that you're with me. That when it comes to drafting games, Fairy Tale is definitely the the, the sine qua non of the genre. And even other games with drafting that I thoroughly enjoy, I've talked about this before. Uh, games like Ginkopolis, games like Blood Rage. I don't enjoy the drafting of it. I think it's largely tacked on. And so I've been looking for a pure drafting game that could possibly be as nearly as good, or at least worthwhile playing just given the existence of fairy tale and i think paper tales might be it i don't think it's as good as fairy tale but it's awfully close in a number of ways it accommodates hate drafting it's quick and it's cute it has substantive player interaction on top of the hate drafting it's got interesting card variety it's got a number uh, a plurality of different building strategies i really enjoyed it it's got lovely lovely art and it's a little overproduced. It, you know it's got a board and wooden tokens when it doesn't really need them uh, so that kind of bumps up the price past what it needs to be, but it also has a very promising-looking expansion coming down the pipe, which increases the player count up to seven. Because for some reason, drafting games have to go to seven now. That's just the law. I wonder why that is. I See, remember. that was a pun. That, that's that, that's what I bring to the broadcasting that, that's, table. That's the humor part. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah.
0: Can you make sure you like hit? Tell me that every time it comes, because I'm sure not only I would appreciate that. You're the one with the air a horn sound effect. A lot of the listeners would the, also appreciate when, when you're the, the You're the
1: comes. producer. You're supposed to be the one ready with the air horn sound effect whenever it is that...
0: Oh, it's upstairs.
1: Technical difficulties. Yeah. Sorry, no air horn. So I'm looking forward to trying Paper Tales again. I, I'm looking forward to showing it to you and seeing what you think about it. This edition was recently published in North America by Stronghold. Apparently this was released in Japan a year earlier. Strange coincidence that both fairy tale and paper tales were, uh, you know, have similar names and were also released in Japan. So maybe that's just what I like in drafting games.
0: There you go. My last game is Blood Bowl Team Manager. And the only reason I talk about it was that I used to enjoy Blood Bowl Team Manager. I've kept it in my collection and I and I was sort of wondering why it stayed on the shelf for so long and someone had it out at at the meetup and I said well I'll just you know I'll I'll play it and try to figure out why we don't bring it to the table more it's because it just takes too bloody long to play and if if you like smash up I really suggest that you give Blood Bowl Team Manager a try. I think it is a superior version of Smash Up, and it's way more fun than Smash Up, but I... It's a low bar. But I... I Exactly. I I really dislike Smash Up. And I now really dislike uh, Blood Bowl Team Manager. Way too long. Your deck does not change up as much as it should for a game of that length. But... Like I said, if you like Smash Up, you know, you're playing players at different fields, you're trying to get the highest amount, you know, different teams have really interesting different powers that really reflect their teams. They they did a great job of that, but, you know, long story short, it takes too long to play for what you get out of it. It's just much like Smash Up, where you're doing the same thing over and over, trying to get the most points at certain areas, and, you know, that gets old very quickly.
1: I got a chance to pull out a game called Titans Tactics. It was a relatively obscure release of about five years ago by a company called Imbalanced Games that basically did nothing else. This is a game from the school of design that I kind of call the claustrophobia school of design, which is how much can we rip out of established genres and still have a compelling game. So this is a no-luck tactical skirmish game where you pick a team of characters at the start of the game and then you go at it. And some of the abstractions are very interesting. So one of them that uh, right off the top is often one that I enjoy. There are no line of sight rules for ranged attacks. There is, however, just the restriction that you can't target somebody if you're engaged. If you're engaged, you have to target the one you're engaged with. So there's a lot of element of basing, but you don't have to worry about calculating the line of sight and shooting around corners and stuff like that. The one thing that it does that is extremely counterintuitive but I think it works really well for a game of its its lightness is damage is purely abstracted. If I whack somebody for two points of damage that just goes to a shared track. You don't track individual damage on an individual character. So it's a seesaw back and forth of who can do more damage to the opponents. But layered on top of this is the standard mix of special abilities and game breaking powers and there's a resource manipulation element where you can take more actions for a champion at the cost of more cards or you can spend an action getting cards back, but again, it's no luck. Whenever you draw a card, you pick the card you want. I really like Titans Tactics. It's very weird. It's a sort of non-standard take on a very, very well-established genre, but it's a genre that I love, namely skirmish games. And I really like it when a game is able to distill those elements of highly asymmetric fighty games into something very compelling, even if it is somewhat abstracted. So it's about a 30 to 45 minute game with, as I say, no luck and lots of variety. Every team of, of champions feels radically different from the ones before it. I think it's a shame that it didn't catch On. Not not really surprised because again it is a very unorthodox take on the genre. And uh I I think maybe someday
0: I'll show it to you, see what you see what you make of it. Yeah, it looked interesting. The production value may be something that held it back as well. It seems a little odd. Well, it's an unassuming small black
1: box. And generally speaking, when people want these kinds of skirmishy fantasy games, you know, they want something that looks a little bit more like Blood Bowl Team Manager, not that that was a particularly big box game. But as somebody who is unfortunately cursed with a local group that disdains anything that deviates from a very, very sort of hackneyed style of game box cover design. Some people on Board Game Geek uh, very reasonably are trying to suggest games to me that I might be able to get you to play that were published by GMT. I've played Dominant
0: Species. (laughs) They mentioned that. I've played it. It's a great game.
1: It's hard. Well, first of all, it's hardly representative of a GMT game, first of all. Hey, and they brought
0: it up, not me. Don't it's me? true,
1: you're right, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. Anyway, finally, uh, the last game I'd like to talk about is the Resistance Avalon. Now, the local... Again, talking about the the things that I suffer at the expense of the local group, the local community is very much of the opinion that Secret Hitler is the way to go and that the Resistance is an inferior game. Now, most people prefer it by virtue of the fact that the Resistance is a slightly more intense experience, and I will freely grant that. The Resistance is a little more intense, and that's because it has how should I call it? Information. And so since you actually have to process information rather than just randomly hurl accusations at people because it's a random game, yes, the resistance is a little bit more intense than Secret Hitler. When and if I ever resurrect all the games you like are bad, I'll probably do an addendum to my review on Secret Hitler because the game has aged very poorly for me. And it is precisely in this way that it's just... It's just randomness by virtue of a whole bunch of incentives that people have in the game to act in ways that make the game relatively random so we played the resistance for the first time in what feels like forever and immediately five seconds into the game it was just like entering a brightly lit room uh, to 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 paraphrase what somebody said of my favorite philosopher emmanuel kant there were there was things to go on there were inferences to be made there was a logic puzzle to be solved oh it was beautiful it was great i loved it so much it hurts my soul so much that I'm not able to play the Resistance more. I will say that I prefer the the normal Resistance because I, I I do also, and this is the height of pedantry, but it is what it is. I don't like how ever since Shadows Over Camelot, the Arthurian legends have been recast as some sort of spy thriller, which makes no sense to me, and I don't know why it, it it's it's settled in with such conviction in the gaming world. I don't object to the Resistance Avalon, and I actually like you know the the Merlin and assassin element, but I prefer it in the sort of uh, uh, the, the original sci-fi version. At any rate. Love The Resistance. It's one of my all-time favorite games. It's a shame I don't get to play it.
0: That was the games we played this week, and now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. And there surely isn't much news, right? It's not as old, you know, Gen Con is going on and they announce stuff during Gen Con.
1: So news, of course, it's ambiguous. There's things that are happening, and then there are things that are newsworthy. You know, Fantasy Flight announces expansions, news at 11.
0: Uh, I mean, we could go on and on about th- 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 yeah, that's one of mine. Richard Garfield and FFG announce Keyshark jumps the forge. <laughs>
1: yeah, so <clears throat> there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about the distribution model for this this game. So Keyforge, the, the selling point is that every deck is supposed to be unique, and I do think it's actually kind of cute that every deck has its own unique card back. I think that is cool. There's, every deck will have its own name and its own little little graphic, and so no deck will be the same in that sense. And that, I think, is fine. And I'm not even particularly worried about the fact that there's some possibility that two decks might be different only by virtue of a couple different cards. Fine. That, that's okay. I don't really think that you're in danger of encountering a deck like that anyway. And even if you did, you'd probably play it different than everyone else. What bothers me is the expectation that the play group is going to be the ones to do the balancing work. Garfield has said that, oh, well, you know, a lot of different things go into balancing, blah, 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 but they, they built into the system is this notion that everyone's going to be logging their plays online, that they're going to go to the Fantasy Flight website and register their deck and say what deck beat against what, and that to me says that they know that, this, that, that the sort of meta is not going to be very stable, and they're expecting that they're going to have to, they can't nerf individual cards, they're instead going to have to restrain decks that are just accidentally too powerful, and I'm not interested in an organized play environment like that. I'm really not. It's well, it's not even organized play. It's just a, a scenario in which they accept the fact that these decks might be horribly imbalanced, and their best response is, "Well, the community is going to give us the data we need to tell them how to manipulate things." You know, this this is just like going back to my objections about app-driven games and players expecting to do the playtest work. I just, just. It makes me uninterested in the game design.
0: That's something I was just reflecting on. That I'll talk about now is that there are companies that are putting out games that are revolutionary and 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 pushing the limits, and then there are other companies that are putting ga- are putting out games to make money, <laughs> i.e., <laughs> third editions, fifth <laughs> editions, a unique card deck that so you can buy multiple ones to try to find the most powerful one than all your friends, and and this just proves the point. I'm not
1: necessarily that cynical about KeyForge. I mean, look if they wanted if they want a license to print money, they would instead follow the standard CCG model. Like that's the license to print money. This
0: that's actually it's o- only a booster at, at you know five dollars. This you have to buy the whole deck at probably going to be what twenty five dollars. No, they deck. say ten. Ten. Oh, they well, say ten bucks a deck. A, that's not too bad. Yeah, it mean, twenty five dollars Canadian, <laughs> thereabouts.
1: Well, honestly, look, I've been, I'm no longer chasing the magic dragon, as it were. I'm no longer looking for the magic replacement. I've tried uh, Codex. The Sterling design, I think, came closest to, to, to doing that for me, but it, it actually showed me that I wasn't interested in a magic replacement. I'm one of the few who thinks that Epic, the card game, did a pretty good job of it, to be honest. And, you know, I've looked over the rules. It, it seems fine. I mean... Look, almost anything is a better designed game than Magic, to be honest, uh, but it's not a format that I'm particularly interested in. When it comes to one-on-one battle card game things, there's a billion different things that are very, very compelling and interesting. I mean, BattleCon, our viewers are crying out for you to try BattleCon, Walker. You owe it to them. You just have
0: to bring it. <laughs> okay. Well, Sakura Arms. Sakura Arms, exactly. Sakura exactly. Arms.
1: Uh, and that's just, in the, that's just in the domain of like constructed deck-ish. Well, you don't really a deck
0: in Battlecon, but... That wants me to interrupt and say that I forgot to talk about a game, Siege Storm, that came with Lords of Hellas. I got to play it, and it has some very interesting mechanisms. You know, where your troops are advancing down a lane, and there's different ways to interact with them at the different positions. And once they get to the end of the lane, there's different things you can do with them. And I thought it was very interesting, and I definitely want to try it again. Okay, well,
1: your your reports are definitely more positive than a lot of the other ones I've heard, which mostly seem to fall under the range of,
0: eh. Well, it was only one play, and I and I could see where it'd be meh, you know, because it's, you know, this uh, the, there wasn't very many cards, and they all seemed to do sort of the it was all just sort of great, creep. See. It was like, this one is a six, whereas this one's a seven, and, you know, I mean, they're, we'll see. Like I said, it was one play. We'll see.
1: You know, just talking about interesting distribution model, there, there are, their design approach, their their approach to distributing Siege Storm was pretty fascinating, you know, give everyone the base set who got Lords of Hellas, which is a non-trivial a number of people, and then they actually, Awaken Realms, the, the publisher, they put out a series of expansions on Kickstarter, largely on the strength of, of response of people who who'd bought their previous games, so yeah, it seems to have worked out for them. Another bit of news out of Gen Con is that Indie Boards and Cards is to merge with Stronghold to form indie game studios. Now, this is also in conjunction with Action Phase Games that Indie Boards and Cards acquired a little bit ago. So this is uh, other publishers, other than Asmodee, themselves consolidating, uh, perhaps to get some sort of competitive advantage in the same way, or perhaps, maybe even, I don't know, this would be the cynical interpretation, maybe just to make them a more appealing target for when Asmodee cobbles them up. Who knows? But... It is very much like when Asmodee bought Z-Man or when they bought other publishers. The claim is that they're going to remain operationally independent and that everyone is going to remain in place and they're going to keep their their unique operating uh, capacity, blah, 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 blah. But... This is just, you know, sign of more to come. There's there's simultaneously increasing fragmentation because anybody can be a Kickstarter game publisher now. But at the same time, there's also increasing consolidation. And it's not just Asmodee. It's other companies as well that are consolidating themselves. So... I don't know if this is a sign of the hobby's growth or a sign of its imminent implosion or both, but uh, it's definitely an interesting development. And there's not a whole lot of detail about what this actually means, like what is, for example, Stephen Buonacori going to be doing, what is Travis from Indie Boards and Cards going to be doing. Not a whole lot has come out in clarity, so we'll have to see what happens.
0: All right, my last bit of news is Project Elite has been picked up by Simon. Or it's going to be a joint effort between Artipia Games and Simon, and we played Project Elite. I believe we both enjoyed it a lot. At least I enjoyed it a lot. And the only thing I'm worried about is that the original Project Elite, the some might say the models were, uh, you know, hideous, hideous, bland, clunky. But I think because it's a real time game, and you're and you're grabbing the figures and you're you know, sort of knocking them aside the and moving them quickly. I'm worried that these Seamon figures might be too stabby or too brittle to to you know live up to this you know fast paced game, so I'm hoping that these factors are taken into account when they design the new figures,
1: yeah, there's any number of ways that CMON... Or, indeed, just the Kickstarter format itself might mess this up. Because, as you say, the minis need to be very, very sturdy. They need to be very easy to handle. And, what's what's perhaps most important, they need to be very, very, very easily visually identifiable on the table, just at a glance. So, I could easily imagine Simon, or, or just anyone, mistakenly saying, Okay, well, now we're going to have three different sculpts of this alien, and three different sculpts of that alien. And, at the end of the day, you're looking at 12 different sculpts, and you can't remember what anything does. Which doesn't work in a real-time context.
0: Yeah, or 30 stretch goals and you have like 15 different types of aliens and just bogs the game down to a point that is no longer fun. But we'll see.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic. If nothing else, the news that Seamon has picked it up has meant that you remember what the game is called, which
0: is a minor miracle in exactly. and another Exactly. Now, well, only because I've written down here.
1: Yeah, every other time it's, what's that space game? Yeah, that space game which, where we roll a bunch of dice. Yeah, the space game with dice, which of course narrows it down. Of course.
0: And that was The news. And why it does not matter.
1: Yeah, that's all that we got out of Gen Con. That's, that's all yeah. that we really want to... Like, all,
0: all that I saw that was interesting look, anyway.
1: Look, if you want to hear about Arkham Horror 7th Edition or whatever, there's pl- t- tons of places where you can hear about that. But, uh, yeah,
0: we don't we don't really care much. True. I moved recently, and my internet is still down. So, to all those, I'm sorry I've not been responding. And And I got my information as best I could, and this is what I thought was halfway interesting. Now on to the rest of this program, which is going to be a joint Tigris New F- Frady's semi-comparison, semi-review with Yellow and Yancey, both Reiner Knizia designs. Mark, what have you got for us?
1: Looking back on this, it really is astounding. I, whether you like his designs or not, the, the reliable quantity and quality of output of Reiner Canizia during the late 90s is borderline intimidating just in terms of tile-laying games alone. In 97 he put out Tigers and Euphrates, in 98 he put out Samurai, in 98 he also put out Through the Desert, and the year after that he put out Stevenson's Rocket. Now I mention these b- primarily because there's a sort of tendency to refer to them as his trilogy sometimes people lump in Stevenson's Rocket and turn it into a quadrilogy, if you're so inclined. Stevenson's Rocket is a much less well-known design, also, parenthetically, being reprinted by Grail Games, the publishers of Yellow and Yangtze, later this year. I'm a huge fan of Stevenson's Rocket. It's an underappreciated game. But anyway, Samurai Through the Desert and Tigers and Euphrates are all recognized as past masterworks of tiling game design. And this is independently of all the other stuff that Reiner Knizia was doing during the late 90s in terms of things like auction games or lots of other set collection games or what have you. And partially as a result of this, I sometimes have a great deal of sympathy with the claim that the question isn't, has Reiner Knizia designed the best game of all time? The question is, which game that Reiner Knizia designed is the best game of all time? And for me, definitely, it's Tigers and Euphrates. Now, partially as a result of this, for years people have been asking us to talk about, either individually or, or collectively, to talk about Tigers and Euphrates and I've been reluctant to do so because I'm quite frankly intimidated by the prospect I don't know that I'm equal to talking about why I think Tigers and Euphrates works, or why I think it's a great game, and Even his other games, like Samurai, like Through the Desert, like Stevenson's Rocket, even those games, I'm not entirely sure that I could capture even a a small fraction of what the brilliance is. But the fact that they were all published over the course of three years blows my mind. It really is, when I was looking over his, his chronology, it was really between 1995 and 2004, he was churning out an incredible quantity of brilliant designs. Since then, it's kind of fallen off a cliff. But maybe he's back. Maybe he's Backwalker. So why, not, why don't we start with Tigers and Euphrates? It did happen first, after all, and I think it can give us some sort of grounding for, for talking about Yellow and Yancey later. What is it that we're doing in Tigers and Euphrates? Well,
0: my, it's, it works out that my what we're doing in Tigers and Euphrates works exactly for both games. So in Tigers and Euphrates and Yellow and Yancey, you are playing colored tiles to generate points, which are collected by same-colored leaders. And there's a whole bunch of other game mechanics, but the lowest color out of all the colors that you've collected all, of all the colored points you collect the lowest color is your score.
1: The thing that I really like about these games as tile games, I, I enjoy tiling games as a genre, even when they're not designed by Reiner Knizia. But one of the things that Tigers and Euphrates and Yellow and Yangtze to a lesser extent, both capture that a lot of other, uh, tile games don't is that the interior of the board still matters. If you, if you look at other tiling games, like Carcassonne is the classic example, Carcassonne mostly happens at the periphery. You know, you score something and then that, that area is dead. You don't really deal with the interior of the board anymore. It's still pretty and it's nice and the board evolves, but you're always dealing on the peripheries. In Tigers and Euphrates and Yellow and Yangtze, every space on the board matters and the geography of the board and the interior is often more consequential than what's happening at the periphery and of course both of these things could change what used to be the periphery could now be the interior or vice versa by virtue of what's going on so not only is it incredibly dynamic but it is also a question of constantly engaging with all areas of the geography so i feel like it owns that element of geography in a way that a lot of other tile laying games don't so let me go into a little bit of of detail about what i mean by this. In Tigris and Euphrates, there's loads of conflict without ever really knocking a player out of the game because the conflict takes a variety of different ways. Sometimes it's bashing someone upside the head. Sometimes it's a prolonged cold war of developing a front and not knowing who's going to throw the first shot. Those are some of the most delicious moments of tension in Tigris and Euphrates that that, that I, I really enjoy. And Coupled with that is a lot of element of cooperation because these kingdoms really do evolve. You're talking about a situation where by virtue of sometimes even just the placement of one or two tiles, the entire scope or significance of a given kingdom can change, and suddenly it is in your interest to either relocate or suddenly redevelop resources in an area of the board that used to be dead to you for all purposes. And it's that dynamism and that need to pay attention to the, co- the overall shifting of the geography of the board that I really think differentiates Tiger's Euphrates even from other excellent top tier tiling games.
0: I agree with all those points. Like you said, other games, the game is mostly based around the tile that you just played. You're going to generate some sort of, you know, game effect or score, and then it's gone for the rest of the game. Whereas, in, like you said, Tigers and Euphrates, it stays on the board until it's removed. But even up until that point, it, it generates its power. It generates, uh, you know, making it closer to the other kingdoms. It, it, it's all around great. And I think what I feel why Tigers and Euphrates is a great game. I think it leads into like chess and games like Barony. I want to come up with more examples, but it's very basic actions. You take two actions and it's very simple, but how how it how it evolves onto the board and all the different, you know, strategies and thinking ahead and thinking five turns ahead and watching it develop, that is where the game is. Like the actual game mechanics or the rules, you know, it's all fairly basic, but just how it all gets generated onto the board is why it is so amazing.
1: I will disagree with you on one minor point. I agree with everything else you said, but the thing, some of the genius of Reiner Knizia designs, his heavier designs, is that everything is incredibly simple, except for one or two things that's very intricate. And that's usually what gives it that extra level of nuance and depth and strategic possibilities. So to compare this to Stevenson's Rocket, for example, in Tiger's Euphrates, most things are incredibly simple. You place a tile... You plop down a leader, uh, but external conflicts internal conflicts to a certain extent, but those external conflicts, they're a little bit crunchy. And the, the details there and the consequences of, of the timing and who selects what timing and how you play the tiles and the chaining consequences of those. Now, some of those subtleties are the you know the standard chaos theory, you know, butterfly flaps its wings and suddenly, you know, Mesopotamia has no food anymore. Uh, but some of it is also just a little bit crunchy because explaining Tigers and Euphrates is not a trivial thing. Lots of other Canizia games, you can be done real quick because they're very, very simple. The analogy that I would draw with Stevenson's Rocket is you can explain how Stevenson's Rocket operates as a game in literally about two minutes, but the scoring is very complicated. And that's where all the detail is. And that's what everyone's like, okay, wait, so how does this trigger? And what what does this do again? Similarly, when you're playing Tigers and Euphrates, people are going to be asking, okay, wait, so this conflict works this way, and the consequences are what again? And you you have to walk them through it again. And that's even ignoring the fact that there are a couple, and this is probably one of those minor nitpicks that I have with it as a a design, a necessary evil. There are a couple of weird corner cases in Tigers and Euphrates that people often forget, like that a tile that unites two kingdoms doesn't score for anybody, even if it doesn't cost a conflict. A lot of people forget about that, and a lot of people miss those those nuances. Uh, But it is absolutely the case that the core elements the core uh, bases of placing tiles and moving around leaders is so incredibly simple and smooth and
0: yet you get this incredible system that that emerges out of it agreed and then the implications of these actions and how it can cascade into all sorts of crazy effects and how it can you know clear a whole side of the board or you know totally sway the game but I, i like i said i just think that the rules are there and then just uh internally seeing how it's going to affect the board is is all what it's all about.
1: You so rarely encounter Euros that have short, medium, and long-term implications of even simple moves. And that's what's completely delicious about Tigers and Euphrates. Someone moves a leader, someone places a single tile, that has an immediate short-term consequence, that has a point uh, consequence, and, and in the game as tight as Tigers and Euphrates, a single point of the right color could indeed change the game. That often happens. It's very often the case that Tigers and Euphrates' scores are within one or two of each other. Then there's the medium-term implications of are they protecting their leader? Are they trying to shore up this kingdom? Is this a short-term opportunity? Is this a just a medium-term opportunistic grab? Are they making a play for a monument? Are they making a play for a treasure? And then there's the long-term implication. Is this going to be part of a massive kingdom-spanning war? Are they shoring up Uh, a a military force to go start bullying their neighbors. And is that going to mean that the entire geography of the board is going to start to become pockmarked full of, of empty dead leaders and, and former tiles. It So often it's the case that even those excellent Euros, they're just short-term management, or they're just a question of, of, of looking for that final score and accumulating money. But the tempo and timing of everything in Tigers and Euphrates is so beautiful, and the balancing between all these considerations about knowing when to play short-term, knowing when to play for long-term, that's what keeps me coming back to a large extent. And this is even setting aside the fact that this is a game where you have to cooperate with people in a very indirect way. You need to be conscious of the fact that you don't own anything in Tigris and Euphrates. You don't own any scrap of dirt. You're just renting it. And suddenly, you're sitting there and you think it's your kingdom. If you think it's your kingdom, very much like Imperial, another game that we both love, if you think that a country is yours, you're not playing right. Because you have to recognize that all of these areas are just a means to an end. And suddenly, somebody else could show up and say, hey, let's coexist. And suddenly, your plans are ruined because they someone else recognized and internalized that the board is there to be manipulated, not to be owned.
0: That's right. Now, the only problem with tigers and Euphrates is when you, when you teach it, the problems that people have and they, they, they have a hard time internalizing the fact that the lowest out of all the scores is going to be your final score. And the fact that there are two very distinct types of battles and they use different tiles on the board. So you're playing these tiles, you play a blue tile, it generates a blue point. If it's in a kingdom, and if your blue, lead, if a blue leader is in that kingdom, then it's going to collect that point. And then, if someone else plays a blue leader into that kingdom, then it's going to be an internal battle. Or if someone plays a tile that joins two kingdoms together and they both have blue leaders that's an external battle and, and they use totally different tiles and sometimes people have a hard time internalizing what is what and you can see the frustration in their face and unfortunately it just takes a few plays for people to get to understand exactly how these work and it's really interesting to me how different each battle is when it, and even though it's It's, you know, very much the same game, but, you know, uh, the strategy of where to place these tiles and how many need to be in in a certain kingdom and how they play off even the two different types of battles, how they play off each other, not only how they are separate from each other, but how they play off each other is just an incredible part of Tigris and Euphrates. To dovetail
1: with what you were talking about, some people get fixated on one type of conflict over another. A common complaint that you hear all the time, even from gamers that I otherwise respect, is that Targets and Creaties is too dependent on who draws more red tiles, because red tiles are what are determinative of internal conflicts. Well, and it's a, it's a simple response, and it may sound trite, and it's hard when you're a new player, but if you can't win the internal conflict... Just use some of the other tools at your disposal. Tigers and Euphrates gives you a number of different ways to dislodge what seems to be an invincible opponent. Number one, you don't necessarily have to beat them at their own game. You can set up your own circumstances elsewhere. That may be a little bit harder to internalize. But if you don't have the red tiles you need, go start an external conflict. Go use a disaster tile to chop them off from the the bits that give them strength and combine there. It's... It it is frustrating when you can't see the opportunities and when you can't see those opportunities and look and be flexible at the different tools at your disposal, the game can feel harsh and punishing. Even when you do know those opportunities and those tools available to you, it can still feel harsh and punishing. A lot of people I know who love Tigers and Euphrates, the, 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 the expression is you never feel like you're winning, you just feel like you're losing less quickly than everyone else at the table. Exactly.
0: So in Tigers and Euphrates, we already talked about you place a tile, you generate a point, you get two actions. Every time it's your turn goes around the table. There's no rounds or anything else. Just keeps continuing around the table, two actions each. And you're always wishing you had that one more action. You know, you you know, you do something right off the beginning of your turn because you know, that's what you want to do. And then sometimes you get, you know, thrown off your game and you think you have more or wish you had more, or sometimes you give people, you know, another whole round to, you know, take two more actions or whatever. And, you know, good on them, but it's, it's a great system. And it allows you to set up certain moves, right? You can, you can use it to sort of like circumvent something or you can, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Distract. You can distract uh, your opponents from what you're actually doing. You, you know, pretend you're doing something over here and, you know, make as though this is not such a powerful move here. And the next turn, two in a row or, you know, they might even play into what you need them to do. And it's a fantastic part of the game.
1: One of the hallmarks of Canizia Designs is always wishing that you had one more action. The hallmark of a Canizia card game is you wish you could discard, but you can't. And the hallmark of a Canizia action game is, is you wish you had one more action. You're absolutely right. And that plays into those that, that balance that I talked about between the short, the medium, and the long-term considerations. The true master of Tigers and Euphrates, and I'm not one of these people, but I've seen people do it, they're able to use those two actions to just sort of layer on top, getting short-term benefit from those two actions, but also leading into a medium and long-term plan. Because so often, sitting there, I look at the board and figure, oh, if I had three actions, I could do something amazing. But of course, that wouldn't work, and it's 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 not appropriate. And this also feeds into uh, the this notion of of can you balance these things like distractions, like building towards the multi, multi-action turns that you're not allowed to have, so you have to thread them throughout different turns, about how incredibly variable every game of Tigers and Euphrates is. That's one of the beauties of tile-laying games in general, and Tigers and Euphrates definitely shines because the number of monuments that people decide to build, sometimes you see a game with... No monuments built, or just one near the end, or tons of monuments. This changes the tenor of the kind of conflicts you're going to see, and how frequently the conflicts are. I've seen hard-fought games where the winning score is 4. I've seen games where the winning score is 20. It really is a function of the choices that people make, and how they approach things, and how this organic geography develops. It is absolutely beautiful to see. And every time I've played Targets and Grades, I have learned something new. Every single
0: time. Alright, now we have to talk about negative things. <gasps> Do you have any negative things? I have some negative things. I have one or two. I think I only have one that I can actually really think of, and that is very front end. If you have if you know the game and you're teaching three other players, then it's much like, you know, any other game, you know, of that weight, you're you know, you're going to more than likely uh win. But it's one of those games that even if it's your first game, uh, the rules are basic enough that you can play, and there's, it's one of the games where I like to say you, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. It's like if you don't need to overthink it, you play a tile, you get a point, and you can play the whole game that way. And then slowly over time, you can start looking ahead and seeing how all these mechanisms work together and how you can you know change the game state and stuff. So that would be my one and only negative for the game. I'll just repeat what I said before, which
1: kind of dovetails with, echoes what what you said. For new players that don't know the other avenues and the other tools they have available to you, it can feel very punishing. It can feel very harsh. Sometimes even for experienced player, it can feel very punishing, very harsh. Sometimes that's exactly what I'm in the mood for, but it can be intimidating. Uh, The other thing is that and I mention this primarily because I think it's one of the rare areas where Yellow and Yangtze is strictly superior to Tigers and Euphrates. <gasps> so more on this later. I know, I know, I know. But more on, this, more on this later. Is that very often, by virtue of the tile mix and just by virtue of how the game develops, you end up with a, with a mitt full of blue tiles. And a mitt full of blue tiles can be used to your advantage, but it's tough. It's it's hard, you have to really work at it and it's one of those things that only a truly experienced player can pull off or if you're in a very fortunate situation. And so the game does let you take an action and wipe your tiles and then redraw. But it is half your turn, and where every action is precious, it can often feel like, like a bit of a mistake. But that's kind of an, a necessary consequence of the design. You need that many blue tiles in the game. Blue tiles are the second most common form of tile in Tigers and Euphrates after Red, because when you need a blue tile, you desperately need a blue tile, because otherwise you're not going to be able to cross a river, because blue tiles are the only ones that go on rivers. And as you might imagine from a game called Tigers and Euphrates, they care about the rivers. But sometimes you don't need to cross the river and you're looking down and you've got four blue tiles and you would love to have something else. So that that that's a bit awkward. That's all I got. That's it. That's all. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about Yellow and Yangtze. Now, <clears throat> Reiner Kizia has in the past sort of played with the ideas that he's introduced in some of his... his Uh, seminal designs we've seen this in raw he redeveloped into dorazia he redeveloped into priests of raw and the raw the dice game and all of this is within a 10 year period after raw was published we see this lost cities that eventually became celtus which by the way is his only sdj winning design which then spawned the oracle in new ways this reminds me i should really play all the celtus expansions because they're very very interesting these are games that differ a very great deal despite having very 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 similar rule sets and it's in that kind of tradition that we have yellow and Yangtze now being released 20 years after Tigers and Euphrates was developed now some of the differences between yellow and Yangtze and Tigers and Euphrates are very very obvious one of them being that we're operating on hexes not squares some of the other differences are thematic and now it's sort of a um, uh, it's it's sort of a uh, A facile joke to say that Kenzie doesn't care about theme and I'll talk a little bit about that later very briefly but obviously the theme is different Uh, but the rules similarities I found to be deceptively significant
0: all I want to put in here is the fact that I think we had the ideal first game yes we we came in uh, thinking that it was an upgraded sort of Tigers New Frates, and we played it with one person that had never played Tigers New Frates, and we got pants. He pantsed us so hard, Walker. And it was and it was like sort of one of these eye opening things. It was yeah. such a perfect first game. Like it was perfect. You know, perfect storm. Someone who's never played. Tigers and game against two players that enjoy it and love it, and and just to show us that it is such a different game than Tigers and
1: Yeah, it w- you're exactly right. It was it was it was an ideal circumstance to really forcing us to acknowledge how different the play experience is, because it was a it was literally halfway into the game where I was thinking, wait, I'm building towards something that's not going to work. I was I was just reaching into my same old bag of Tigers and tricks, saying, oh, okay, I'll dislodge them on an external conflict. I'm like, wait a minute what no i can't do that so <laughs> we got destroyed yeah so thoroughly yeah so you really need to unlearn uh preconceptions um so I'll, I'll start off right away with one of the reasons why it's so it's so different is that despite the fact that so much changes in tigris and euphrates it tends to happen through uh very staged planned interventions Whereas Yellow and Yangtze is very, very dynamic. Things happen at a much faster pace, and you don't really have medium to long-term planning in the same way that you have in Tigers and Euphrates. It's much more turn-to-turn. Turn.
0: I think he, what he's done is taken your one negative Tigers and Euphrates, which is when you have a, a bad tile pull, He's made it so every tile is useful. Every tile now has a special ability, I guess you could say, that it does an alternate thing while you play it. And so I feel in Tigris and Euphrates, you're more playing the map state, where in Yellow and Yancy, you're more playing the tiles that you have in your hand.
1: Yeah, that sounds fair. So so to, to talk about blue tiles in particular, I said I'd pick it back up. In Yellow and Yangtze, you can play any number of blue tiles you want for a single action and just chain them all along. So if you end up with a mitful of four blue tiles, you know, that's fine. You can get rid of them all in, in one go and refresh while, while still get to getting to score and play them instead of having to quote-unquote waste an action. And that's even setting aside the fact that there are now new special tricks that you can do by just playing tiles from behind your screen. Whereas in Tigris and Euphrates, there were these special disaster tiles you had that you can only play twice during the game. Now, in Yellow and Yangtze, it's just if you discard two blue tiles, that has the same effect. You nuke a tile anywhere on the board, which isn't any more complicated in terms of rules. In some ways, it's even more straightforward, and it gives you just a greater degree of flexibility with respect to the tiles you
0: have in your hand. Let's just go in to another one right because the other one is the green tiles you can play two of them to move a building that doesn't really mean much because we haven't explained what they do but that just goes into something else I want to say is when these two abilities we have to play two tiles if you happen to have that color leader off the board you can use it as one of the tiles in Yellow and Yancey that's not something that can happen in uh, Tigers and Euphrates and I thought that was a fantastic mechanism I think that is a
1: very 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 solid improvement because in Tigers and Euphrates, one of the most punishing situations you can be in is if you're, all your leaders get kicked from the board. And indeed, in Yellow and Yangtze, it's a bad scene. You need your leaders on the board. It's a, But it's just a consolation prize. It just gives you a little bit more flexibility, kind of like a catch-up mechanic. You've had, your, your leaders are off, you haven't been able to score with them, but now you have a little bit more flexibility in terms of your tile play, because you can buff up your tile play with your absent leaders.
0: Exactly. Your first action can be to do this double action, you know, using the leader, and then your second action is to put that leader out. So I, I think it's really neat.
1: Which really feeds into to, to my central point that Yellow and Yanksy can be
0: very, very, very
1: dynamic. Uh, you still have to plan ahead a little bit. You know, you have to look at your tiles and figure out what you're going to do. But it, you're no longer is it the case that it's really in your interest to look at the board state and say, okay, I want the game in five turns to look like this. I need this kingdom that I'm in over here and this kingdom I'm in over there to grow in the following ways. And I need to watch the growth of that. No, no, no. It's more like okay, here's my hand of tiles, here are the points that I need to do, uh, okay, let's 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 have some crazy stuff happen, because, uh, so you talked about buildings, so we're, we're using buildings here to refer to either monuments in the case of Tigers and Euphrates, or pagodas in the in the context of Yellow and Yangtze, and I said one of the great variable elements in, in Tigers and Euphrates is, how many monuments get built. You don't have that variance in Yellow and Yangtze. A lot of pagodas are going to get built. They're going to get built all the time. They're going to get stolen. They're going to get destroyed. They're going to get rebuilt. They're going to get
0: relocated. So they're, they're going to hit there. They're going to be frequent. And you had best just accept that. And so why why is why is it so more prevalent in Yellow Nancy? Well, one of the reasons in Tigris and Euphrates, sometimes, like he said, no monuments were built. How are monuments built? You convert four tiles off the board into a monument. And now those tiles are indestructible, but they are no longer of any color. But in Yellow and Yancy, they, they're still normal tiles. They just happen to have a building on top of them. They still provide everything they did before and after. And and now can be destroyed. So one's destroyed, the, the pagoda gets taken off, now it can go somewhere else, or now the person doesn't get... And so it's a lot more dynamic that way. And you only need three. And you only need three, you as only opposed to th- four. Yeah. We haven't really explained what buildings do. The buildings do exactly the same thing in both games. At the end of your turn... If you have the appropriate leader in the kingdom with a building, then you get yet another point of that color.
1: Well, and there, there's other difference here. And we, we're not we're not going through uh, this level of detail with the rules because we just enjoy explaining the rules. But it really goes to show the kind of different play experiences you get from very subtle differences. In Tigris and Euphrates, all the monuments were two colors. So you had to know what that other color was gonna be. You may you built it out of one color, you may have built it out of red tiles. But you have to think about what the secondary color is going to be. Maybe you have that leader on the board. Maybe you don't. But you have to you have to be cognizant of that. Whereas in yellow and yangtze it's just one color. So there are no unintended consequences of building a pagoda in that sense because you don't need to think about having two leaders in a kingdom to be able to monopolize the the points there. You don't need to worry so much about possibly handing a tremendous amount of income to somebody else just by virtue of the fact that you cared about one color and not the other. So it has fewer of those follow-on butterfly effects that make tigers and Euphrates so fascinating. Similarly, as you say, because the pagoda tiles don't get transferred, you don't weaken yourself from external conflicts. And indeed, that's that's more or less what happened the first time we played. Our friend who had never played Tigers and Frades was building pagodas all over the place, and I kind of thought, Ugh, "What a noob!" Exactly. I'll oh, show him. Yeah. Our future points. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then about you know five turns later, while he's scoring tons of
0: things, like, "Why can't I get this pagoda from him?" It was because oh. Because I'm playing the wrong game. Exactly. Because, like we said, because in Tigris and Euphrates, the monuments are indestructible. Right. So so once they're on the board, they're there forever. So you have to be very conscious of where you put it and which one you pick. Yellow and Yancy, it doesn't matter. You yeah. build a red pagoda, oh, all the red pagodas are out. Well, I'll just take that one from over there. You get to decide it and you move it over to your new place. And, yeah. And
1: it's... A, it's common, a common newbie mistake in Tigris and Euphrates is thinking, oh, he built a monument, I'll build my own and then I'll catch up. No, no, no. Not going to work that way. But that's precisely what is a legitimate tactic in, Ty- in Yellow and Yangtze. Oh, he built a pagoda? Eh, I'll just build my own. No problem. And <laughs> yep. that, that's that's the recourse. So it, it it it's a little bit more accessible in that sense. Again, fewer unintended consequences of these actions. You don't need to worry about a tremendous game state changes. It's also the case that games in Yellow and Yangtze, and this is, this is less of a criticism than it sounds, they tend to play out a little bit more similarly than a game of Tigers and Euphrates. Because you know there's going to be a whole bunch of pagodas being built regardless. And so the tempo of the game and the the, the sort of scoring horizons
0: of the game tend to progress in a much more similar way. Yeah, the the final scores of our games have been very uh, close to being the same at the end. Yes,
1: and they've all hovered around, you know, 10 to 15. We haven't seen, uh, in terms of winning scores, that is, we haven't seen the sort of... uh, uh, you know, hard-fought, four-point victory that sometimes you see in in strange but nonetheless possible games of Tigers and Euphrates. And partially as a result of that, it just feels friendlier because gains are always short-term and because you can just go off and do your own thing uh, very often. It just feels like a friendlier game, which can be an advantage
0: in lots of contexts. Yeah, for sure. It's more modernized, you know, not as much, you know, uh, I've just taken you out of the game and type thing. It has happened, but that was only because people, namely me, were using bad strategies from the <laughs> wrong game.
1: Okay, well let's talk about that a bit, because that that's in connection with, with wars, or external conflict. It depends on, on on how you want to call it. It's been... Tigers and Euphrates, thankfully, has been in several different editions, so it's been called different things in different editions, but uh, in Tigers and Euphrates, a war can be huge, and it chops up the board, and, and tons of points into the system if if people approach it properly. Whereas in Yellow and Yangtze... Uh, it's it's interestingly different in both axes. For one thing, fewer points are going to come in. Generally speaking, you only get a couple of different colors rather than just a whack of, of, of single color. Another element which is a little bit interesting, and I actually do appreciate, is that suddenly everybody gets to participate in the conflict, whether they're in the conflict or not. Everyone, kind of sort of the same way that you do in Cosmic Encounter, can pitch in some red tiles because that's how external conflicts are determined. Now, always by red tiles, can pitch in on either side to see who wants to win. So if you start a fight in Yellow and Yangtze, you would best be certain that you can either take everybody else on or that you're able to make sure that you can account for everyone else's interests in the coming conflict.
0: Well, that that would be one of my one quibbles about the game because it doesn't matter if someone has any interest in it at all because they might just have too many red tiles and they have to pitch them somewhere and it could unfortunately be unbalanced for one person so i'm not saying that's a terrible point but i'm just saying sometimes that's the little a little bit level of randomness that threw me off the game a little bit sure the thing that i dislike the most
1: about the new conflict system in yellow nyanxi is you don't get the same possibility of that delicious parasitic cooperation you get in Tigris and Euphrates. If two kingdoms go to war in Tigris and Euphrates and you coexist in strange ways, you can make sure that all the conflicts go down on your side. Say if I've got a green leader on one side of the fight and a blue leader on the other side of the fight I can make sure that my green leader and my blue leader both win. If I've prepared carefully if that's what's in my interest, etc. Yel and Yangtze can't be done. One kingdom and all the leaders in that kingdom win the other kingdom and all of those leaders lose now that changes some of your incentives and and, and that was another thing that i had to unlearn as a tigers Euphrates veteran I, you know i saw this i had my leaders spread out in different kingdoms and suddenly they went to war and i realized that i was going to lose no matter what happened because i was fighting myself literally but it removes that element of insinuating yourself into other people and it encourages more the sort of mono player kingdoms where everyone's leader is in the same place which is a difference that you know can vary by taste, but I, I like the, the greater degree of sophistication of Tiger's Euphrates in that sense.
0: And what else? The other thing they did was the fact that sometimes people have trouble, you know, figuring out what's an internal and external fight in these games. They also, you know, added how they work differently now. Yeah, so now in Yellow Nancy, in an external fight, the leader plays his tiles last, in an internal fight, he's got to play his tiles first, and it's just yet another level of of rules that will make it frustrating for new players.
1: Overall, it feels like a simpler game. Overall, it feels like there are fewer rough edges and weird corner cases, but that huge difference between how internal and external conflicts works is very much to the detriment of understanding how the game works. In Tigers and Euphrates, it's very simple. Instigator plays first and loses ties all the time. And then, of course, you know, you have to remember what tiles and what contrib- contributes to strength and all that stuff. I don't mean to say that it's simple, but it's at least consistent in the timing and who loses ties. And you're right, in Yellow and it's exactly the opposite. Internal conflicts, instigator plays first and loses ties. External conflict, they pay last and they adjudicate ties. It's really, it's, it's such that people who've played a couple of times get tripped up and forget and, you know whether they played target 205s or not and it's 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 unfortunate because again it's it's a friendlier game, it's more accessible, it's more dynamic, it's less punishing but at the same time it has this serious asymmetry that causes people to get
0: confused. All right, let's move on to yellow. Yes. I've listed here Lame and great all at the same time. Okay, do so, tell. So, what is yellow? Yellow is yet another color. That... And we're not talking about the river here. This is. No, this is uh, another color that's introduced in Yellow Nyancy. In Tigers and Euphrates, they called it treasure. It would be on the outside of the map, and I think it was almost a mechanism to encourage you to spread out and to uh, engage in external conflicts. It was a tricky, rough
1: edge corner case that led to the game being more interesting. It, it, it was worth
0: its weight, but it did increase the rule's grit non-trivially. In Yellow Yancy, it's another color, so it's a, a, a pagoda that can go out. You also get points for laying the tiles if you have the yellow leader out, because there'll be yet another leader. But it now puts this yellow pagoda on the board, which which sends up all these flags, because yellow points can be added to any of your points to boost up your lowest, right? They're so wild, yeah. They're wild. So once someone starts generating points from Yellow Pagoda, then, you know, all concentration and game is centered on that one person and that one Pagoda and stopping that, those, those wild points from being generated. And I think that is fantastic.
1: It is. I do like how it's simpler now. It's just part of the general game system. I also kind of appreciate how it's a little bit, well, at the same time, a radical break from Tigers and Euphrates. It's a little bit of a throwback, because when you build a monument in Tigers and Euphrates, everyone perks up. It's like, okay, this is what the game is about now. This is a flashpoint. Similarly, a Yellow Pagoda in Yellow and Yangtze, unlike the other Pagodas, is a bit of a flashpoint. Because it doesn't matter who you are, you care about it. And there's only one available yellow pagoda, so you can't have multiple ones on the board. So in a way, it feels more like a monument than the other pagodas do. It feels more like the old- the old school way. Now, does this increase the variance based on who draws the yellow tiles and when? Absolutely, because the yellow tiles are now just in the bag, but there's a very small number of them. And you're not going to see a whole bunch of them. That's a bit unfortunate. I'm not a huge fan of that element. But it does, I think lead to at least some focus of attention and it it helps give a bit of that old school flavor back to the game so what is it that you don't like about the yellow tiles then
0: I'm not sure what it was. It was one of those things that probably just anger from previous games. Those damn yellow tiles. <laughs> you know what
1: I mean? I I They're very how consequential. How it. It, it, You know, it, again, it is the one thing that you can't afford to ignore. Somebody else can be sitting on a blue pagoda from the beginning of a game and you don't care because, again, the scoring is the lowest points. They can have a billion blue points. You don't care. It's fine. Like, their marginal, their, their, their 20th blue point is irrelevant. You don't care. Give it to them. But... Every yellow point that somebody gets matters. And so you have to be cognizant of it.
0: So that's another thing that drives the game. Because along the side of the board, there is a uh, bunch of tiles put out to the side, randomly. And if you play a green tile, you get to choose one of those tiles to put in behind your screen. That's another thing we didn't really talk about. All the tiles that you have are hidden from everyone. Ah, We're not going into the rules. But anyway, the yellow tiles have no special ability when you play them, other than you get... The wild cube, if you have the yellow leader out, and if you form three of them together, like we said, you put out the yellow pagoda. So once a yellow tile shows up on the side of the board, then it's yet another thing that drives play in order to get those green tiles out in order to be the one that takes that tile from the sideboard.
1: I do like that added nuance of taking the tile from the sideboard. I think that's neat. It helps communicate to other players what it is you're trying to do. So it gives them a bit of heads up about what might be coming. It Keep, make sure that every color has its own thing because in Tigers and Euphrates the thing about green tiles and green leaders was taking these treasures but treasures don't exist anymore so now green needs something so overall I like it it's it's a simple element and it helps mitigate the luck of the draw to a certain extent so I think one one more thing that I want to mention though in terms of yellow and Yangtze which I think is a huge step back again the joke about about Reiner Kinitzi as a game designer is that his games are themeless. And that they're all pasted on themes and they're all these dry mathematical exercises. I actually think, and I will I will defend this to all comers, so by all means send send me your nasty messages, The Tigris and Euphrates is the best-themed civilization game I've ever played. Because every other civilization game I've played has Genghis Khan with a tank formation defending the pyramids. It's always that same thing. It's absurd, it's not especially thematic, and it doesn't really get you very far. Whereas, in Tigris and Euphrates, you see dynasties, you see kingdoms rise, you see them fall. You see the emergence of new political alliances, you see them fall apart. You see great works being constructed, and you see them being fought over and contested. And that, to me, I think, is what a Civilization game ought to look and feel like. On the other hand, Yellow and Yangtze is supposed to be about the seven warring kingdoms that led to the formation of the Qin Dynasty, but the problem is, then you end up with the same question that a lot of Martin Wallace designs, for example, have, which is, what are the players then? Because if you're telling me a game about sort of the dynastic rise and fall of kingdoms, then that's fine to represent sort of nameless, faceless agents of history, sort of like demigods of, of dynasties. But if you tell me that this is a game about the formation of the Qin Dynasty and the specific political, you know, these specific political arrangements, I suddenly wonder, well, then who am I? Why do I have, uh, you know, the control of the merchant class in the Wei kingdom, but in the Shu kingdom over there across the river, I control the military class? What am I doing here? Then it starts to fall apart. So I don't think that the theme in Yellow and Yangtze quite works to the same extent. But again, many people won't care because a lot of people think that Tigers and Fades is themeless. But they're to be pitied, not punished.
0: I think a great theming of this game would be like conference rooms and and you know everyone's doing like a government debate, and you're like sending messengers into these different rooms, and you're trying to form this you know get everyone to come to your side of the argument.
1: Oh, dear God, I agree with you. That sounds great. I uh, you know. That sounds fantastic. No, I, oh, man, that would really work. Oh, geez. That, that, that's a sort of mad genius. <laughs> it's almost as good as sending cows to the alien overlords. There you go. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that because I wanted to give a plug for Tiger's Euphrates as being a very thematic experience, for me, anyway, and how Yellow and Yangtze isn't the same. So I think it's time to sum up. So what, what overall... As a, as, as a enduring fan of Tigers and Euphrates, where are you coming down on Yellow and Yangtze as a game?
0: I have to say, I didn't write any of this down, but unfortunately, while playing Yellow and Yangtze, all I can think of is, why aren't we playing Tigers <laughs>
1: and Euphrates? I thought that that was going to be where I ended up. I'm actually surprised that I think that Yellow, Yellow and Yangtze is different enough that it is worth keeping around. I think it is a very, very good game. It is not brilliant. But it's very good, and I do appreciate that it is in many ways a little bit cleaner, a little bit more accessible, and a lot more friendly feeling than *Tigers and Euphrates*. For
0: sure, I can see where one game would work way better in certain groups over the other. So you definitely, I like you said, keep both. Like gaming groups, you know, uh, newer players, yellow and Yancy, hardcore gamers. Tigers and Euphrates type thing. I don't regret the time I've spent with Yellow
1: and It's not like it's not like when I'm playing uh, you know, games where and not to rag on it all the time, but it's not like when playing Seven Wonders and saying, why am I not playing Fairy Tale? or when I'm uh, when I'm playing Terraforming Mars and saying, why am I not playing Race for the Galaxy or Fifty First State or something like that? It is very much the case that when I'm playing Yellow and I'm able to appreciate it as its own thing. And in many ways, it's kind of like a testament to the brilliance of Tigers and Euphrates that can spawn this different thing that is nonetheless so similar. I love watching Kencio work. I love him watching develop ideas. It's, it's one of the reasons, one of the ways in which he separates himself from the other very good game designers. His designs have so much space for them for, for manipulation that you can watch this thesis slightly tweaked. It's in no way a threat to Tigers and Euphrates. It's, it's, in many ways, it's helped... Me, in, in some ways, actually, it's helped me appreciate Tigers and Euphrates more just because of how much more planning is involved in Tigers and Euphrates, how much more dynamic the board is. Because even though the, uh, the 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 actual turns aren't as dynamic and they're not as inst- as much instant gratification as you get in a game of Yellow and Yangtze... It's much more dynamic long-term in
0: terms of, again, the rise and fall of these kingdoms and watching the board develop. And I'm hoping we're going to get more players to play Tigers and Euphrates. we introducing this Yellow Nancy, and hopefully they'll really enjoy it, and we'll say, hey, we've got this other game that's sort of like it, that you might like as well.
1: That actually, I, I, I hope you're right, that actually might be even more dangerous, because as we've said, Tigers and Euphrates can be very intimidating to a new player, and if we feed them the introduction game of Yellow and Yangtze, and they try to play Tigers and Euphrates as though they were playing Yellow and Yangtze, that would be a very humbling experience for them, I think. And then they might not want to ever come back to it
0: again. So this that might be true. very dangerous. Yeah, it would be. It definitely would be the opposite, I think, where we got pantsed by playing Tigers and Euphrates during Yellow and Yangtze, but trying to play Yellow and Yangtze in Tigers and Euphrates would be the opposite experience.
1: And it would probably be very frustrating. Yes, Well, that about closes us out. So thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at thegamesyoulike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. Or you can check out our board game guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything that you send us, at least when we have internet. And we'll get back to you if we possibly
0: can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Easter egg. Uh, Mark, how about that uh, Innis expansion that was announced? Do you think that will make people want to play it again? I I don't know. A lot of people like Inish. I just... I I wanted to like it. I just couldn't. All right. We'll see. See you next week. Bye.
1: You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced (laughs) by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bickman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.